Welcome to Freedom Fellowship. More information can be found online at cometofreedom.com. Grab your Bibles, open your hearts. You're going to be blessed today. We have a special guest teacher with us. We love the Word of God because we love the Lord and we love what He has to say to us. So please get your hearts open and ready to receive all that He would have. If you don't want to miss any future studies from Freedom here, please subscribe now. Before I begin, uh, let me mention that, uh, uh, yes, I, I make basically five trips to East Africa uh, each year, uh, East Africa being the countries that surround Lake Victoria, uh, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, and Burundi. I've been in Rwanda and Burundi so far this year, and in the beginning of June, will be going to uh, Tanzania. Um, all of our teaching materials, including, uh, we, we have right now, I believe, uh, 19 books, um, and uh, each book is accompanied by a series of video lectures. They're all on our website, which is www.eclea.net. E-C-L-E-A stands for Equipping Church Leaders East Africa. Uh, you can, all of them are downloadable for free, um, and uh, each, uh, so we have, one of our books is First Timothy, um, and uh, the, each of the video lectures is about 30 minutes or so long, and so there's a series for each of the books. We also have a sermons page with audio and uh, written sermons uh, that I've done, so, uh, and what, what I would suggest, and I talked with Mark about this uh, over the last uh, couple of days, um, after each of the sermons um, uh, that I will be giving, uh, we can then open it up. If you have any uh, questions or comments, things like that, uh, we can spend some time uh, doing that afterwards uh, because each of the sermons will be around 45 or so minutes. Um, so there'll be still time if you have any comments or questions, we can do that afterwards. So before I begin, let me, let me pray uh, with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, uh, for Freedom Fellowship. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithful people here. And I pray, Lord God, that you will speak through your word, through me, and into the hearts of everyone so that uh, Lord God, we would all draw closer to you and become more obedient to you and be greater lights in our homes, our places of work, and our communities. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so, we will begin. Um, now, you may or may not be aware, uh, but there is a mass exodus from Christianity going on in America, primarily uh, among people aged 30 and under. One study shows that as of 2021, 42% of people aged 30 and under claimed no religious affiliation. And these younger adults uh, will raise their children as nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, meaning people who have no uh, religious uh, affiliation. Now, while a tiny percentage of those who've left the church uh, will return, uh, nuns rarely embrace religion at any point in their lives. Um, now, this trend began particularly in the early 2000s and has been swift and steep. The Pew Research Center uh, estimates that Christians will be a minority in America by 2070 if current trends continue. Now, there are many reasons for this. Uh, first of all, people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris have made atheism respectable. Um, additionally, probably about 95% of all colleges and universities and the vast preponderance of government schools at every level essentially have an atheist worldview. Uh, then there's a problem within the church itself. Uh, in his books, Unchristian and 
You Lost Me, David Kinnaman uh, points out that the vast majority of young people uh, who leave the church uh, cite hypocrisy and judgmentalism uh, by professing Christians, particularly by church leaders, as their reason for leaving the faith. In short, we have a major problem. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, points us to the answer to this problem. In these five verses, the Apostle Paul gives us the heart of what Christianity and the church are all about. Uh, he tells us what the basis of our faith is, what we should not be doing, and what the goal of our faith is. Um, what he says is quite simple, yet it is profound and practical. If we keep this at the forefront of our mind and our life, it will change the way young people, and everyone for that matter, uh, will view Christianity and the church. Now this can lead to the reversal of the trend of people leaving uh, the Christian faith. In fact, if what Paul says is applied by individual Christians and by the church as a whole, it will make Christianity and the church winsome and appealing to people of all ages. So let me read 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 5. Uh, if you have your Bible, of course, follow along because this is what I will be talking about. Um, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, it begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, in these verses, Paul is telling us that God's love transforms us so that our love can transform others. Now, we're going to see this as we consider four things. First, the essence of Christianity. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2. Second, what the church should not be doing. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Third, what the goal is, verse 5. Uh, that's what we should be concentrating on. And finally, we will look at some applications of this. So first, the essence of Christianity. Now in verse 1, Paul calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. The word apostle refers to someone who has been commissioned and sent out with authority for a specific purpose. The essential meaning of apostle uh, is conveyed by such terms as ambassador, delegate, or messenger. Uh, while Paul was an apostle in a, a special sense, he was one of the foundational apostles of the church. In a greater sense, all Christians have been commissioned as ambassadors, delegates, and messengers of Jesus Christ. So how we represent Christ is of vital importance. Now, many years ago, uh, communication theorist Marshall McLuhan coined the phrase, the medium is the message. And what he means for Christians is that the way Christians speak, act, and live their lives in general is portraying Christ to people. Now, from what we saw earlier, uh, what many, many young people are seeing is a hypocritical Christ, a judgmental Christ, a Christ who is insensitive to justice or to people's needs. In other words, a false Christ, an unchristian Christ. And that is why they are turned off to Christ and are leaving the church in droves. Yet that is the exact opposite 
of the real Christ and what Christianity is all about. Now, the end of verse 1 points out that Christ is our hope. Without hope, what's the point? Uh, without having someone and a future to look forward to, life becomes meaningless and without purpose. Now, when I'm in Africa, I always look forward to coming home because I love my wife and I love my home. And sometimes when Nancy uh, is gone somewhere and I'm alone in the house, I think, this is what it would be like all the time if something happened to her. Yes, I'd survive, but it's just not the same. Now, Christ should be something like that for the Christian. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, as Christians, we are never truly alone. Whatever you are going through, he is with you. And we can rest assured that whatever is happening to us is part of his plan. We can have hope that our lives are not meaningless, but are profoundly important. Now, verse 2 then uses three simple words, grace, mercy, and peace, that really define the basis and essence of Christianity. The use of grace, mercy, and peace together summarize the tragedy of humanity's condition and God's solution to our plight. What do I mean? I mean this. Humanity's condition is that there is a radical depravity or corruption about every person. It is also called the power of indwelling sin. It affects everything about us, how we think, reason, speak, act, feel, and relate to people and to God. We know what we should do, but because of the power of indwelling sin, we don't do it. And the result is that there is no peace between different peoples, different families, tribes, and nations. And there is not peace between people and God. Now, humanity's attempt to solve this problem uh, is largely based on religion. Now, there are lots of religions in the world. There's Islam. Hinduism, Buddhism, traditional African religions, etc., etc. But there are only two kinds of religion in the world. There is Christianity and everything else. Now, what I mean is that at their core, every religion in the world, except for Christianity, has the same basis. Namely, you must perform certain works. You have to do enough good deeds, make enough sacrifices, deny yourself certain things, pray five times a day in order to try to bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful you. And if you do, God may accept you and take you to heaven or nirvana or whatever there may be when you die. But all such religions are doomed to fail because our problem is within us. And there's, there's something radically wrong with our heart, and we cannot change our heart on our own. And no amount of external actions, such as education, or doing good deeds, or sacrifices, or denials of things, or prayers, can change our sinful inner nature. In fact, we can't even meet our own standards, let alone God's. Now, Christianity alone is different. It is unlike any other religion in the world. Christianity alone recognizes that on our own, we cannot change our own hearts, and we cannot bridge the gap between us and God. Only God can do what we cannot do, namely, give us a new heart. And that is why he came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ was unique 
in all of history. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. He alone never sinned, but lived perfectly in the eyes of God, perfectly obeying God in everything, thought, word, and deed all the time. And that qualified him to step into our shoes and on the cross take our sins and our guilt and the punishment that we deserve onto himself. But that's not all. He also, by his obedience and righteousness, his obedience and righteousness are imputed to us by our faith in him. In other words, he takes all the bad in us and all the judgment and condemnation that we deserve, but he takes that onto himself. But he also gives us all the credit for all the good that is in him. Now, every other religion in the world essentially says, if you want God or the gods to accept you and take you to heaven, it's up to you to work harder. Christianity alone says, it's not up to you because there's nothing you can do. Instead, it is all about what Christ has done for you. Amen. And that is what grace, mercy, and peace are all about. Grace essentially means undeserved favor. In other words, receiving the good gift that we have not earned and that we do not deserve. Mercy is the other side of that coin. It's not receiving the bad consequences, namely God's wrath, judgment, condemnation, and hell that we have earned and that we do deserve. And peace is the great thing we need. Peace within ourselves, peace among people, and peace with God. When we come to Christ in faith, understanding and believing who he is and what he has done, he frees us from our past, he comes to live inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit, and then he works in us to change us on the inside to make us the kind of people he created us to be in the first place. That is the gospel. And that leads us to what we should not be doing. Verses 3 and 4, let me read them again. Paul said this, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, the main things mentioned here are not teaching strange doctrines and not paying attention to myths and genealogies. When Paul says that people should not teach strange doctrines, in essence, what he is saying is, teach the gospel and the implications of the gospel. That should be the focus, not other things. Now, we began by talking about why masses of young people are leaving Christianity and the church. One reason may be that many churches are not concentrating on what is most important, namely Christ, the gospel, and the implication of the gospel for our lives. Now, myths and genealogies are basically human accounts of things and traditions about our origins. Now, it's nice to know what family, tribe, race, and nation we are from. We all draw our identities from such things. But to draw our primary identity from any of these things is not Christian and can lead to terrible divisions and evil. For example, the Holocaust against the Jews in World War II and the genocide in Rwanda in 1994 were stemmed primarily from myths and especially from genealogies. 
Both of those crimes against humanity were based on the idea that my group is better than your group, so we're going to wipe you out. Now, racism, tribalism, or ethnic favoritism is not acceptable for anyone who takes the name of Christ. Christians of all tribes and races must think of themselves as Christians first, and then as members of an ethnic, national, political, economic, or other category second. Now, it is true that blood is thicker than water. However, for Christians, it is the blood of Christ that must be seen as the common blood that binds us together, not the blood of family, tribe, or race. That's why Galatians 3 verse 28 tells us, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is basically telling us to major on the majors, and that leads us to verse 5, what we should be concentrating on, the goal of our faith. Paul says again in verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now the word for goal or, in, or aim, as the English Standard Version puts it, is the Greek word telos, which means the goal or end or outcome towards which a movement is directed. It's like a target you're shooting at. If you don't know what you're aiming at, in other words, if you don't know what the target is, you're never going to hit it. Now, knowing the outcome, the goal, the aim, is the most important thing in every area of life. That's why businesses come up with a mission and purpose statement. Everything has to be directed toward achieving the mission and purpose. In other words, achieving the goal. If you're cooking, do you want to bake a cake or make a pot of chili? If you don't know what you want to make, then heaven only knows what you are going to end up with. Uh, but according to verse 5, the goal or aim of our faith can be summarized in one word. What's that word? Oh, three people got that. Come on. <laughs> what is the goal of our faith? Love. Come on, one more time. What's the goal? Love. Well done. Yes, the goal of our faith is love. Now, how important is love for Christianity? It's the central thing, and it's all over the Bible if you simply look for it. Let me just give you two examples. In Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, a man asked Jesus, what is the greatest command? And Jesus said, uh, the first and greatest command is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he added, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these two commands hang the entire Bible. And then on the night before he died, uh, in John 13, verses 34 and 35, he told his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another even as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, why is love so important? The answer is because God is the source of everything. And according to 1 John chapter 4, it says God is love. So love is at the heart of who God is. It is at the heart of why he came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. It is at the heart of Christianity, and therefore, love is to, be, is to be at the heart of us and our lives. It is this goal, this 
aim, this entire worldview that also separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. For example, the basic worldview of Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism essentially is that all is one. This world is an illusion and the goal is to be liberated from the endless cycle of reincarnation and to lose one's individual identity and merge with the universe like a drop of water uh, is absorbed into the sea. On the other hand, the basic goal of Islam is jihad, namely to bring the entire world into subjection to Allah and his Sharia law by force and violence if necessary. Now both of these goals in their very different ways are the exact opposite of Christianity. Christianity views the world not as an illusion but as real and views all people as having individual worth because everyone is made in the image of God. And since God is love, if people are to find everlasting life, it cannot be compelled by force and violence. But the implications of this are more radical than we might suppose. Jesus said, if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? We are to show love to all kinds of people even the unlovable, even our enemies. Why? Because Jesus Christ showed his love for us when we were his enemies. And if we have a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith, we will, we will show that kind of love. We won't be able to help it. So what does love look like? Well, verse 5 says that love is to be from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Let's take a look at these. First, a pure heart. In the Bible, the heart describes the inner essence of our being. It's the real us. It is the source of who we are and everything we do. What Paul is telling us is that real love can only come from the real you. Real love is from the inside out. Now we can never achieve the goal of love or truly be people of love on our own. Why not? Because naturally our hearts are hard, they are self-centered, and we cannot change our own hearts. In the book of Ezekiel, God called them hearts of stone. But also in Ezekiel, God said that when we come to faith in him, he will give us a new heart. He will take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. In other words, a living heart. Now, naturally, our worlds revolve around ourselves. But love, by definition, requires someone to love, namely the beloved. Only by getting a new heart, a pure heart, a heart like Jesus' own, can the focus of our lives be transformed by loving ourselves to loving God and loving others. That's what the new birth is all about. That is what Christianity is all about. Now. A good conscience. Does your conscience ever bother you? Uh, you don't have to answer that one out loud. Um, but I will answer for you and say that my conscience bothers me when I know what I should do, but I don't do it. Or I know what I shouldn't do, but I do it anyway. But we can even do the right things for the wrong reasons. That's where a pure heart is so important. Um, because with a pure heart, you can know what you should do 
and do the right things for the right reasons. Then our conscience will never bother us. We will have a good conscience. And sincere faith. What is sincere faith? Real faith is not just a matter of believing things intellectually, although using our minds is important. Real faith is not just a matter of believing certain doctrines, although doctrine is important. Real faith is lived out faith. Real faith is where the head, the heart, and the hands all work together. Now, the Apostle James talks about this in James chapter 2, where he says in verses 14 through 17, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now, dead faith is not saving faith. It is the product of dead hearts of stone. But saving faith, lived out faith, is the product of living pure hearts. You see, all of this works together. Remember, Jesus said that the entire Bible can be summarized in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But how do we know if we love God? We can come to church and say it. We can sing songs about it. But how do we know? Well, the Apostle John gives us the key. In 1 John 4, verse 20, he says, If someone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he is a liar because it is impossible uh, to love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen. What John is basically saying is this. How we do the second command, loving our neighbor, is the proof, is the test of whether we are really doing the first command, loving God. In other words, how we treat people shows what we really think of God. Why is that? The reason, I think, is because all people are made in the image of God. And how we treat God's image shows what we really think of him. Now, Jesus made this very clear in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. In those verses, he was talking about the judgment and compared everyone to sheep and goats. Let me summarize what he says there. Uh, says in uh, Matthew 25. He says uh, that one day, everyone is going to appear before him as a sheep or a goat. Now, on the outside, sheep and goats look very similar. But Jesus says, I will say to the goats, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And when I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. What do the goats say? They say, when? When did we see you? If we'd have seen you, Jesus, we'd have done these things. But Jesus will reply, what you did not do to the least of these, you didn't do to me. Go to hell. And then he'll say to the sheep, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. And when I was a stranger, you took me in. What do the sheep say? They say the same thing the goat said. When? When did we see you? But Jesus says to the sheep, what you did do to the least of these, you did to me. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, what's the difference between the sheep and the goats? The main difference is that the faith of the goats never penetrated their heart. It never changed their lives. It was just lip service. The faith of the sheep did 
penetrate deeply into their hearts and it changed their lives. Now, did you ever think it odd that the sheep asked Jesus the same question the goats asked? When? When did we see you? Why did they ask that? There can only be one reason. The reason is that they began seeing people as Jesus sees them and treating people as Jesus treated them. But more than that, the sheep took seriously the biblical idea that people are made in the image of God. So they began seeing Jesus in other people. As a result, the sheep started treating everyone just like they would treat Jesus himself. And they didn't even realize it. Why didn't they realize it? Because thinking and acting like Jesus had become second nature to the sheep. Jesus' nature had become their nature. So acting like Jesus was no longer unusual or out of the ordinary. They didn't realize they were like Jesus because the way they were acting had become simply the normal way to live. They didn't have to give it a second thought. That is the life of love. That is the way the Christian life is supposed to be like. So how do we apply this in our lives? Now, all of us, individuals and families, are in somewhat different circumstances. We know different people, uh, we work in different jobs, our, we have different skills, our financial situations are somewhat different. Nevertheless, the Bible and the early church give us principles that are applicable to our lives today, just as they were 2,000 years ago. Let me uh, just focus on two of these principles uh, that demonstrate love, which we can apply today. And if we get serious about this, it can transform our lives and the lives of others. Now, the first principle from the ancient church is found in Acts chapter 4. Uh, and I'll read from verses 32 through 35, which says, The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, you need to understand something. These people were not members of a commune. They all owned their own property just like we do. And we know that because verse 32 tells us that all things uh, belong to the people. Um, and verse 34 says that when they saw needs, the owners of property would sell their property, even their land and their houses, and give the proceeds to the poor. What was happening was a complete change of attitude about their property. They had a new attitude about property because they had a new attitude about people. They had this new attitude because they had a new heart, a pure heart. And because they had a new heart, they started loving their neighbors as they loved themselves. And that translated into what they did with their money and their property. Now, Notice the results of the church living out this new life in Christ. One result, as verse 34 tells us, is there was not a needy person among them. Now that is remarkable because most of the early Christians themselves were poor. Many of them were slaves. But when people take care of each 
other. There's no more need. One hand washes the other, and so both become clean. And notice the second result of living out this new life in Christ. Verse 33 says that the apostles were testifying with great power and God was blessing the entire church. Why? Because the church was doing what God always wanted the church to do. The church was living the way he has always wanted us to live. I am convinced that one of the reasons the apostles were testifying with such power is that the people, by their very generosity, were acting so counterculturally that everyone else took notice. Because everyone naturally puts themselves first. We all naturally tend to hold on to our money and things with a tight fist. But the early church was not like that. The early church held on to their money and things loosely and had an open hand when they saw needs. Um, they, uh, and, and God took care of them. Their lives were a powerful testimony that Jesus is alive and he changes people from the inside out. That is powerful and it still works today if only we have the faith to do it. Now, how do we do this? With respect to our money, the question we need to ask ourselves is, how much do we give? One key to knowing this is, do you keep records and have a budget? How much do you budget for giving? Giving to the church, giving to missions, uh, giving to the charities and ministries you believe in, giving to people in need. My guess is if you don't keep records and do not have a budget, you are probably wildly overestimating uh, the amount that you actually give away. The key is budgeted percentage giving right off the top. Doing that breaks the hold that money and our consumer culture has on us and it frees us to see that our money, like our very lives, is a ministry for Christ. Also, love is relational. How well do we know our neighbors? Do you know their needs? God has put certain people in your life, friends, neighbors, co-workers, that he has not put in mine, and vice versa. As a member of the body of Christ, uh, you know, you can do things to help those people that most non-believers simply will never do. But you can only do that if you know people well and are attuned to their needs. That will take time and effort, but it is worth it in order to show them the love of Christ. Love is intentional. It seems to me that we need to seriously think about the people that God has put in proximity to us and to start acting to develop relationships with them. Now, the second transforming principle is that the early church treated uh, believers uh, and treated especially other believers uh, as family. Mark chapter 10 verses 29 and 30 talk about this. Uh, those two verses say this, Mark 10, 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mother and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. What is Jesus talking about? Most Muslims who leave Islam for Christ know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Uh, and I know this from talking with many former Muslims in East Africa. When a Muslim leaves Islam for Christ, 
he or she may be disowned by their earthly family, kicked out of their home, lose their job, and even have their lives threatened. Yet they know that even though they have been disowned by their old earthly family, they have been adopted into a new family, the family of Christ. That's why Jesus is saying that in Christ, you receive a hundred new brothers and sisters and mother and children in this age. Who are they? Well, look around you. These are your brothers and sisters. And what about the homes and farms? Well, if your earthly brother or sister uh, needs a place to stay, aren't they welcome in your home to stay with you until they can get back on their feet and get their own place? Of course they are, or they should be. Uh, now, that's true in our earthly families. Jesus is saying it should be just as true in our spiritual family, the church, because the church is a family. And one mark of a good family is that a family takes care of its own. Now, this will affect how we live and what we do in every area of our life. In Acts 10, Peter had been given a vision and shown that God does not show partiality between Jews and Gentiles. Now, Peter was a Jew, and he had been eating with the Gentiles after getting this vision. But then later on, he withdrew himself and stopped eating with the Gentiles. And as a result, in Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul confronted Peter publicly, called him a hypocrite, and said that Peter is not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. You see, Peter was denying the very gospel that he preached by the way he was treating Gentiles in his private life, namely, who he ate with. Um, and see, this same issue occurs today. It may not be the issue of who we eat with, but this same issue occurs every time the church or an individual Christian denies people membership, friendship, positions of leadership, fellowship, or full equality because of ethnic, socioeconomic, or other similar reasons. What this is telling us is the practical implications of the gospel are radical and transformative. They affect our attitudes towards people and our relationships in all areas of our lives. Now, is that how we feel about each other? Because think about this. Our earthly families will end when life ends. And if some members of our earthly families are not believers, we will never see them again. But this family, our new spiritual family, the church, will continue to be a family forever. And since that is true, it seems to me we should start acting toward each other as if we were a family because, in fact, we are. You see, in God's scheme of things, the church is the true family. Our physical earthly families are just the shadow. The church is the true everlasting reality. We tend to have things backwards. Now, if we start thinking and feeling and acting toward our fellow believers with a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith, it will make it much easier to start acting towards everyone with a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Why? Because the church basically consists of people who are not blood relatives, but we are to treat them as if they were blood relatives. So if we do that with this group of people, then we can start treating everybody like they are true blood relatives. You see, we will be like the sheep 
in Matthew 25. Naturally, we will start treating all non-blood relatives as if they were blood relatives. That is what Christianity and the church are all about. And that is what we are to be like. So let me conclude by saying this. What we do on the outside reveals what we really are on the inside. Our heart affects our head, which affects our hands. Keep the goal, the aim, in front of you. In fact, I think every Christian should memorize 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. Because if we take this seriously and then intentionally look for practical ways in our own lives to apply what it says, people will notice. God's love will transform us so that our love can transform others. Like those early Christians, we will be living testimonies that Jesus is alive and he changes our lives from the inside out. Then, if someone asks us why we do what we do, we will be able to tell them, Jesus changed my life from the inside out so I can love you because he first loved me. Now think, if all the church was like that, young people would not be leaving the church in droves. Instead, they would be attracted to the church in droves because everyone wants to be part of a loving, others-centered family of people who are just like Jesus. That is real Christianity, and it works. May God grant us the ability to live this kind of life all the time with whomever we are with. And if we do, I think we will be amazed at what God will do through us. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word. The words are simple, Lord God, but they are profound. They are transformative. I pray, Lord God, that you will take your word and plant it deep within our hearts and minds, Lord God, so that it will change our lives, so that we can be like those sheep and start naturally living your kind of life, treating others as you treated them, because as we do that, you say, that's the way we will be treating you. Help it to become second nature to us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for studying the Word of God with us today. If you were blessed by the teaching of it, would you please make sure to share it, that others too may be blessed and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.